The church was not born into a time of peace. Even the great Apostle Paul starts out at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was looking for followers of Jesus to arrest them, to bind their hands, and to bring them down. In his own letters, he confesses that he persecuted the, older, the early church whenever and however he could. And then he saw the light. Jesus asked him, why do you persecute me? And tells him to go to the city and to do what he is told to do. And Paul is left blind and totally helpless in the hands of a disciple called Ananias. Ananias also receives a vision instructing him to help Paul, though he must certainly be wary of this enemy. But he lays hands on Paul, and Paul receives his sight. Seeing once more, Paul begins to preach that Jesus is the Son of God to anyone who will listen. Well, it's not too surprising that when you get to the passage that we heard this morning, the early church is not 100% ready to welcome or to trust this Paul. And who could blame them? If someone was relentlessly publicly attacking this church and then suddenly showed up to worship on Sunday morning, wouldn't we look twice? Discernment is a big part of our calling as Christians, and it's certainly not an easy part. After all, it's easy to see what is broken now, what's, what's so wrong in the world, what Paul called this present evil age. There's war, poverty, greed, abuse, destruction, and we pray for peace, and we pray for change. When we look to Scripture for comfort, we find so many passages about God's work to restore, to heal, to remake our world. It is the coming of the kingdom of heaven, near and at hand. It is the lion lying down with the lamb. Jerusalem remade the holy mountain of God. We can find so many verses of scripture reassuring us that this peaceable kingdom is real and it is vital. Micah tells us that people will stream to it from all the nations to learn from God how we should live, what we should do. This shining truth and this hope is brighter and stronger than any division, any unrest, any evil or sin. And it's all of us together. But here we are in the middle, not quite there yet, and we're looking to celebrate World Communion Sunday, looking to rejoice at what God is doing here and now in our world. To watch the news, you would think that the peaceable kingdom is impossible. You would think that we are all too different, too far away, too set in our ways, or stuck in our own concerns. But in the church worldwide, we strive for something better than the hopeless tone of the news. We hope for and trust in the glorious day of peace because God's word stands higher than any human word of cynicism or despair. Now we know that the global church is not perfect, 
But we also know that we, the church, have spread God's glory, healed wounds, unbound prisoners, fed the hungry, clothed the naked, and on and on. Even in the very beginnings of the church, it was still made up of sinful, imperfect people. But when murderous, dangerous, treacherous Paul felt a change of heart and preached earnestly and persistently, the church opened its doors to him. He should have been turned away as an enemy, but he was welcomed as an apostle, a light who would point to Christ with all of his might. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been God's counselor? Who can understand the infinite scope of God working in the world or offer God helpful pointers along the way? Who would have guessed that Paul, of all people, would become an apostle, an ambassador of Christ Jesus? In their bold faith, in trusting and welcoming Paul into their midst, the church expanded and strengthened and grew measure upon measure. He planted churches. He made great journeys. He put life and limb on the line every day. It was not a time of peace or comfort. It was not a time of freedom or safety for those members of the early church. But the book of Acts tells us that despite all of those realities, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, and it was built up. They increased in numbers because they lived in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church had the peace of Christ and not the peace of Rome. Having adopted this posture of peace, the leaders in the church could see beyond what they were used to believing into the reality that God was transforming, into the kingdom that God was making real before their very eyes. So here, in our day and age, how can we adopt this posture of peace? How can we embrace children of God more deeply and more fully? It can be difficult to see ourselves as a truly united, truly global church because we struggle with language barriers and cultural barriers and all kinds of assumptions about one another. In the history of evangelism, of spreading the good news of the gospel, some have gone out and said, to be a Christian means you have to look and dress and sound just like me. My hymns, my service, my translation, all very important. Others went out and said, let me learn your culture and translate Christianity into terms you can understand and relate to. And so this debate, are we imposing our culture rather than true faith? Or are we compromising the message of the gospel to make it relatable, but losing essential truths? What is the line between Christ and culture? We are urged, as Paul writes in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We are children of God who regularly miss the mark. We are children of God who forget that our citizenship is in heaven, wherever we were born on this planet. We know that we are sinners, and that means that none of us 
are native Christian speakers, even if we grew up in the Christian faith. We are native sin speakers. Any doubt and discomfort that we might have about earnest Christians who practice a little differently from us, that's a holdover from our native language of sin. But the more fluent we become in the language of Christ, the more that we can rest in this realm of peace and celebrate the many ways that the Holy Trinity is worshipped around the globe. And this means that we can lift up our voices in praise and rejoicing as we discover the many ways that people bring glory to God's name. We can learn from each other's practices as we see how we are connected in Christ the world over. I have a few examples about how Christians around the world celebrate Christmas. I thought that'd be fun. I know we're all excited. I hope we're all excited for the holiday season. In Mexico, they have a tradition called posada. I don't speak Spanish, so I'm sorry if that's wrong. Posada means inn or lodging in Spanish. From December 16th through Christmas Eve, children form processions, and they go from door to door. And they have a special song that they sing, remembering Mary and Joseph's struggles to find a room at the inn in Bethlehem. Each night, the children are turned away from several houses before being welcomed into one of them and offering prayers and thanks. Then they have a party together with food and games and sometimes fireworks. On Christmas Eve, they do the same thing all over again, the procession, turning away, the celebration, and then they all go together to a midnight mass or a midnight church service to welcome baby Jesus into the world. Their Christmas festivities are crowned in the church. In Malta, a southern European island, they have a tradition called the preaching of the child. And that means for midnight mass on Christmas Eve, they select a little boy or a little girl between seven and ten years old, and they preach the sermon from memory. My memory is not that good. I find this very impressive for a seven-year-old. <laughs> But I can only imagine how beautiful and touching that it is, such courageous children and beautiful faith. In the Congo, they have a musical evening on Christmas Eve with five or six different choirs and a nativity play that goes from the creation of the world through the Garden of Eden all the way up through Jesus' birth and the slaughtering of the innocents. And they time this play so that Jesus is born as close to midnight as possible and then the service doesn't finish until 1 a.m. But in some cases, they keep singing and praising until dawn and then come back for a 9 a.m. service. That's commitment. <laughs> I got one more. In India, even though Christians are a small minority of the population, about 2.3%, they make a great public display of their faith. Some in southern Indian put oil lamps on their flat roofs so that all their neighbors will know that Christ is the light of the world. And northwestern Indian Christians go out every night of the week and sing carols. They'll even travel to neighboring villages to tell people the Christmas story and the good news for a whole week. As we remember the global church, let us look in awe at the power of Jesus' holy name. His teachings, his love, his divinity are broader than any one culture, any one language or denomination or group. 
We may worship differently, but hallelujah, look how we worship. Look how the love of all creation shines through where we couldn't even imagine. Look how Christ sets the table where all the saints from every time and every place, every culture and every language gather to prepare for that great day of peace. As we commune this day, may God bless us with a greater comfort, a greater vocabulary, and a greater boldness in the language of Christ, so that we may speak with joy to everyone we meet. Amen.